This is the podcast ICU Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burn Center at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome back to the podcast. The topic that we're going to discuss today is that of soft tissue infections. And soft tissue infections seem to be occurring, at least in, in our practice, more frequently than they have in years past. There are several potential explanations for this that we'll, we'll go over this. The, the name of soft tissue infections uh, varies pretty dramatically depending on what the context is. You may hear these referred to as hemolytic streptococcal gangrene, uh, necrotizing cellulitis, necrotizing fasciitis. And then there's always my favorite, that one that seems to land on TV the most, and that is flesh-eating bacteria. Whatever you call it is really irrelevant, but what's important is you recognize that this is occurring and you move to get rapid treatment for this. And by rapidly treating the patients, you can have a dramatic impact on the morbidity and mortality associated with the disease process. When these present delay, they present uh, requiring massive surgical debridement of, of skin and subcutaneous tissue, sometimes muscle, and even in, in the most severe cases, entire limbs requiring you know emergent amputation. And when they presented early and treated appropriately with uh, rapid uh, debridement and appropriate antibiotic therapy, we could really limit the magnitude of, of not only the cosmetic deficit that these wounds create, but also some of the functional deficits. Now, in your approach with a patient who has a necrotizing soft tissue infection, this is a surgical emergency, an absolute 100% surgical emergency. It certainly seems in my career that the uh, number of cases that we're seeing of necrotizing soft tissue infections is certainly uh, on the increase. Uh, I don't... Um, uh, it is interesting to me uh, what may be the potential explanations for this. Uh, some people have felt that it may be due to ver- more virulent t- types of uh, the organisms or the disease involved. Other reasons that have been put forward are simply a greater attention uh, and that more sensational accounts of individual cases uh, that we hear in the media, going back to that idea of the flesh-eating bacteria or flesh-eating um, diseases. Um, certainly some would argue that, you know, we only see what we know, and therefore maybe the tabloid media has, has helped uh, propel some recognition of this, both in the lay public as well as the medical public. There's also a shift in the patients that we're treating nowadays compared to what those patients that we were treating uh, 20 years ago. Most uh, hospitals now are just giant intensive care units. The magnitude of the patients or the severity of the patients we're taking care of are really much sicker than the ones we were taking care of 10 or 15 years ago. Hospitals that treat large number of critically ill patients, uh, namely teaching hospitals and public hospitals, certainly see an increased numbers of necrotizing soft tissue infections. We also have increased numbers of patients who have, are chronically ill or maybe immunosuppressed, and that may make them more predisposed uh, to these very severe infections. Uh, increased obesity in the population uh, and perhaps even the better recognition of the, the process where uh, identifying more and more necrotizing soft tissue infections. Now, what's key about this is this represents an infection, and I think what uh, some people uh, who are well-meaning but poorly informed would, would uh, 
feels that any kind of bacteria on a wound or any bacteria on a surface rec- uh, represents an infection. The presence of bacteria does not confer the presence of disease. example I like to frequently would use is that if we were to take a sterile swab and swab somebody's hand, uh, we were, would likely certainly grow a variety of organisms in the microbiology lab, but that would not indicate that that patient actually or that person has a hand infection, that we actually have to have invasion of bacteria into normal tissue. We have to get inoculation of bacteria in a superficial skin, causing skin infections, and there are many possible mechanisms that would initiate cutaneous infections. It's also large damage or injury uh, that, um, that can result in, uh, from a surgical incision or a traumatic injury. Uh, there are wounds uh, that can combine with the means for introduction of bacteria with potential medium in which bacteria can multiply. But whatever the possibility or whatever the mechanism that occurs is bacteria have to get into a normal space uh, and begin to grow and multiply. Once they start this, this begins a cascade of events that can result in uh, necrosis and ischemia, uh, resulting in tissue thrombosis of vessels. Uh, and this basically will launch this sequence of events that results in, in necrosis of these large areas. We've already mentioned some of the patients who are at risk for the development of these uh, uh, infections, uh, typically diabetics, people who are immunosuppressed, uh, as well as the patients who are IV drug abusers. Diabetics have impaired blood flow to the skin as well as other soft tissues, and therefore they have a decreased ability to fight a bacterial infection, as well as other metabolic changes that will make them more susceptible uh, to the development of an infection and make them resistant to the fighting of an infection. Patients who are any kind of immunosuppressive therapy um, um, uh, to uh, limit um, rejection of transplant or for cancer chemotherapy are also at increased risk for development of uh, soft tissue infections. And additionally, these patients who are immunosuppressed are more likely to develop infections from uh, some more unusual organisms than the more common types uh, that we would typically associate with uh, skin and soft tissue infections. And then there's that whole group of patients who are just normal. Uh, they don't have any of these uh, factors that you would uh, consider as a risk factor to predispose to a necrotizing soft tissue infection. So don't always assume that somebody has to have some sort of form of diabetes or morbid obesity or be on some active anti-metabolite or chemotherapy agent or immunosuppressant uh, to uh, develop a necrotizing soft tissue infection. Shifting a little bit and talking about the organisms that are responsible for these types of infections, well, there are a variety of types. It's not really uh, predictive of one particular type of infection. Uh, there could be gram positives or gram negatives. Uh, the infections could be polymicrobial, meaning multiple different types of bacteria, or mono. Um, uh, microbial, meaning one predominant organism. They can be aerobic or they can be anaerobic. Um, and they can have multiple organisms that are acting synergistically together. So by looking at a particular wound or knowing a particular type of history, it's really difficult to say that this is the absolute uh, most predominant organism that we can predict absent any cultures. Now, when a patient does have a monomicrobial infection, it's usually caused by group A hem- hemolytic streptococcus, Staph aureus or clostridial infections can also occur in uh, microbial infections. Group A strep soft tissue infections 
not uncommonly involve younger patients, uh, typically involves areas like the extremities, and are also associated with the development of uh, streptococcal toxic shock syndrome. Now, these infections may appear suddenly in, in a patient who's been previously healthy and are often exceedingly rapid in their progression. Now, you, patients will get organ system dysfunction that can be out of proportion to the extent of the local signs and symptoms. This means you're going to be looking at a wound. You're going to say, that doesn't look so horrible, but boy, this patient's really incredibly ill and with multiple organ dysfunction. The next type of uh, monomicrobial infection that can occur are the clostridial infections. And the clostridial infections are classified associated as uh, myonecrosis, which is a gas gangrene, a severe toxicity, and they have a higher mortality. Now, clostridium perfringes uh, and clostridium septicemia uh, are often cultured, and clinical signs include intense pain, swelling, crepitus, and a very thin, watery discharge. Uh, now, when you explore these patients, you have necrotic, sometimes blackened muscle uh, is encountered. Now, what's interesting about these first two, both the streptococcus and the uh, clostridial wound infections, these are the types of infections that occur relatively early uh, in a surgical wound in the early postoperative period. And when I mean early postoperative period, sometimes these infections can occur uh, within the first 24 hours uh, following an operation. So when you're called to see a patient potentially who uh, has a fever, they're post-op day one, and one of the things that I'm always kind of intrigued by is that uh, somebody will present a patient and we're post-op day one, and they said patient had a fever, yada, yada, yada. You go in and you see the initial operative dressing in place. To me, that's not acceptable. Uh, if you're evaluating a patient who has a fever, you've got to look at that surgical wound, even if it's within that first uh, 24 hours. At least uh, in our institution, it seems like people want to leave the initial post-operative dressings on for 24 to 48 hours. But if they are developing a streptococcal or a clostridial wound infection, that's going to occur within that time frame. So that wound has to be inspected. And these are two very serious and very aggressive types of necrotizing soft tissue infections. There are other types of uh, organisms that certainly can cause necrotizing soft tissue infections besides uh, the streptococcus. Bacteroides uh, is the most common anaerobe that can cause it. Uh, you need tissue to uh, actually process the culture with bacteroides. That's something that's interesting you need to know. Gram-negative organisms are common in different types of mixed infections, more often uh, common in postoperative wound infections. Canada and other fungi can also be associated with uh, uh, these wound infections. These are typically seen in patients who are immunosuppressed. Uh, they may require microscopic tissue evaluation for the diagnosis as well. We already mentioned clostridia. Typically, it, we consider it relatively common, but it is rapidly fatal uh, if left untreated. Vibro vulnificans is another organism uh, that is uh, often seen. Uh, our, ICU, our medical ICU guys come across that every now and then. It starts as a pretty severe cellulitis uh, and uh, typically associated with people who have been in and around uh, water. Uh, it must be remembered that the microbiology of soft tissue infections is usually not known until days after the treatment has started. So what does this mean is that we need to be aggressive. Uh, we have to assume that it is the worst potential scenario. Uh, and, uh, again, this requires early and appropriate surgical debridement as well as antibiotics. This is going to give me an opportunity to get back on my surviving sepsis campaign soapbox. These patients will present sick to you 
everything that's in play surviving sepsis needs to be in play here. You need to know about how to resuscitate these patients. You need to know what are the appropriate vasopressors to use. You need to know what are your resuscitation out, your uh, resuscitation uh, outcome uh, variables regarding blood pressure, heart rate, lactate. And again, we would refer you back to the surviving sepsis, a podcast to go over that. But we'll go over some of that stuff here as well. And what makes these organisms so big and bad is is still kind of uh, uh, a loss. Uh, you know, I, it's always interesting to me is that there are, you know, you have to remember that virulence and resistance are two different processes, that there are some uh, organisms that are very sensitive to multiple antibiotics that are just really, really bad actors, and they're highly virulent organisms. There's also the patient factors, issues of infection, necrotic tissue, and so forth, that'll just set these patients up for really the start of a wildfire. Uh, and uh, once these infections get going, uh, they really get going. And remember, colonization and infection are two separate processes. Once the organism really begins to grow in the tissue, the infection just goes like wildfire, uh, and there's really the two principles we talked about. First is the destruction and the breakdown of normal tissue components, and this is being done by proteolytic and lipolytic enzymes. You know, we know what enzymes are. They're basically substances that basically uh, will accelerate a reaction proteolytic, as the word sounds like, breakdown of proteins, lipolytic, breaking down of lipids or fats. Now, as you're breaking down the protein, breaking down the lipid, this causes the tissues to um, uh, basically breaks them down further. This provides more of a a medium or uh, nutrients for the bacteria to continue to grow, and they accelerate their growth um, uh, and it allows the uh, infection to progress. There's no physical barrier here because we're using these proteolytic and lipolytic enzymes that basically break things down and digest them. As we're doing this, you have to imagine that we're literally taking the physical barriers that may uh, uh, prevent progression of these infections away. We're breaking down the wall so the bacteria can continue to spread. The second major element of these infections is that the bacteria will release chemicals uh, that are known as cytokines. And those of you who are you know, physicians would understand that cytokines, for the large part, are the instruments of an inflammatory cascade. And I've, I've used this example over and over again on the podcast throughout the years. But, you know, it's almost a stupid joke, but, it, you know, when one falls off a building and out of a plane, it's not the fall that kills you, but the sudden stop. And I use that to try to illustrate what's going on in a lot of infectious or inflammatory processes. That in this circumstance, there, these bacteria are elaborating cytokines. These cytokines will then initiate an inflammatory process that can result in things like ARDS, and organ dysfunction. So in a lot of times, it's not so much that the, it's the infection that's resulting in life-threatening critical care complications in these patients, but it's the inflammatory process related to that infection. And that, that, that inflammatory process will result in the overall process of sepsis and septic shock. And this is important when we under, try to understand any uh, septic-type uh, process, be it a pneumonia or urosepsis or a necrotizing soft tissue infection. And again, I would refer you back to our podcast that we did regarding the survival sepsis campaign. And it's important that you understand what are the uh, targets for resuscitation, what are the appropriate steps to take, and how rapidly we should get to those, uh, those items done. Next, we want to focus on what is the signs and symptoms of how these patients present. And they will present with significant variability. They can have patients who have uh, signs and symptoms that are obvious to patients who have very just small, minimal clinical manifestations. And sometimes uh, they'll have a disproportionate, uh, even with moderate or small amount of cutaneous manifestations, the patient could have really profound, deep necrotizing 
uh, fasciitis. Now, the patients, uh, the infections often develop in the deep muscle tissue planes and resulting in an epidermis that appear relatively uninvolved until late in the course of the disease. Now, this may lead to difficulty differentiating serious non-necrotizing uh, soft tissue infections from straight-up cellulitis or other non-necrotizing infections. And clearly the problem this creates is how to delineate, you know, uh, somebody has a mild erythema of an extremity, how does one delineate a cellulitis from a necrotizing soft tissue infection? Clearly it is an unreasonable uh, attempt to try to uh, take somebody with cellulitis to the operating room uh, for a suspected necrotizing soft tissue infection. Now, typically the clinical presentation of a necrotizing soft tissue infection usually begins with localized pain, and the wound itself or the skin will look deceptively benign. It doesn't look like it's much of a problem. Now, clinical clues could include things on the physical exam, such as erythema, edema, any kind of inflammation, uh, bronzing of the skin, vesicles or bulla, uh, clearly, crepitance is what everybody always looks for, they feel for, they try to get x-rays looking for it. It doesn't really occur that commonly. Uh, local anesthesia, perhaps pain out of proportion, looking at something that eh, doesn't look too serious, and then you palpate it and the patient's, you know, you're peeling them off of the ceiling. Loss of function, uh, certain characteristic uh, drainage or foul order uh, will certainly push you into the, the concerns about a necrotizing soft tissue infection. And then you get into the more systemic kind of problems, such as fever, uh, rapid heart rate, attack cardia, a patient having altered mental status with something like confusion or uptundation, and certainly shock and a systemic inflammatory response syndrome. Early recognition is the key to um, having a reasonable or good outcome with a necrotizing soft tissue infection and recognizing those patients who are clearly at risk for developing these kind of problems. And we've mentioned them before. They're patients who are diabetic, people who have peripheral vascular disease, malnutrition, uh, and malnutrition can occur in a variety of settings, not only people who aren't eating well, but certainly as people who are recovering from uh, major surgery or they're immunosuppressed or they have a, a malignancy. Um, patients who are obese, uh, people who are elderly in advanced age. And we mentioned those immunocompromised states such as uh, people with uh, AIDS uh, who are on steroid therapy, patients who have chronic alcohol or IV drug abuse, uh, and clearly that goes uh, back into an overall state of poor health as well as malnutrition. It is unfortunate that the only real way to make the diagnosis is clinical. Uh, there's been some uh, attempts to try to use frosection or other uh, techniques to diagnose necrotizing soft tissue infections, uh, but other than uh, um, fungal infections with like aspergillosis or uh, invasive infections is usually not diagnosed microscopically. Uh, the defining characteristic of necrotizing soft tissue infections is the tissue destruction and the advancing infection, which can best and quickest be determined by clinical assessment. Usually this is done in the operating room. Now, as we mentioned earlier, the real dilemma comes in is how do I know that this isn't something like a cellulitis who just might get better with antibiotics versus something such as a necrotizing soft tissue infection that would require a trip to the operating room and a rather extensive and perhaps debilitating uh, or disfiguring operation. If there's question, it, it's not an unreasonable thing to do is to start the patient um, uh, for on antibiotics uh, for what you think may be a simple soft tissue infection, uh, elevation as well as a mobilization of the area. And you have to frequently assess this area, perhaps every four to six hours. Now, the limit of the erythema on the cellulitis should be marked on the skin with a pen 
And with attention determined at the border, infection appears to progress beyond that point in subsequent examination. So if you think it's just a cellulitis uh, and you mark the patient out uh, and you're treating the patient what would be considered appropriate antibiotic therapy and it continues to progress, that might be a sign to you that you need some sort of surgical source of control or that the antibiotics you've chosen are not appropriate for that particular organism. If it appears that uh, that area does not uh, uh, improve or continues to progress after 8 to 24 hours, uh, then one really needs to be considered, you know, do you need to go and do a surgical exploration? Now, there will always be folks who will try to get imaging studies and try to glean some additional information. I don't know that it really adds anything. I don't think it really distracts. It detracts very much. But, you know, certainly if you get a plain film of an extremity that looks like it has cellulitis and there's, you know, fascial air, you have the diagnosis, time to go. Uh, but the absence of it does not mean that the patient is normal. So sometimes people will get things like CT scans and MRIs and plain films, and what they're doing is looking for soft gas or another means uh, of, of edema of the planes. Now, there's also the clinical aspiration of fluid to look for bacteria. Uh, also, you know, this is very underwhelming. Cultures take days to get back, uh, and gram stains are, are not available, particularly in the evening. Uh, uh, and it's just not very predictive, and I wouldn't rely on that as well. Now, operative exploration we talked about uh, is an incision down to the muscular fascia, and uh, you should fully evaluate it. The, the area should be examined for any kind of gray-brown fluid. Uh, I often talk about a dishwater drainage um, and uh, the changes of the fascia. And the fascia, when you typically look at it, next time you do something like a, a burn excision, you're down to the muscle fascia, or you're doing something like a mastectomy, uh, which aren't done very often, and you get a sense of what that normal muscle or muscle fascia looks like. It's usually a glistening white, almost a spider webby kind of appearance. Uh, in the circumstances with a necrotizing um, um, soft tissue infection, it will actually appear gray in appearance, and it, appear, and it separates very easily from the subcutaneous fat or fascia. So one of the things you can do is you can actually make an incision in the area that's questioned, uh, kind of make a small incision uh, down to the muscle fascia, examine the fascia, evaluate for the drainage, and then take your finger. And if you can easily sweep the uh, overlying subcutaneous fat off of the underlying muscle fascia, uh, that is a reasonable indicator that you have fasciitis, and then you should pr uh, proceed with a wide surgical debridement. Now to approach the actual process of the management, and again, we said having a low index of suspicion, and again, going back to the survival sepsis guidelines for resuscitation, endpoints of a uh, resuscitation as far as blood pressure, as far as urine output, as far as SVO2, um, uh, antibiotics. Uh, you want to resuscitate, get the patient going on antibiotics quickly, uh, and aggressive surgical debridement and supportive care. When you look at the surviving sepsis guidelines, one of the things they talk about is source control. If somebody has a surgical infection, all the IV fluids and all the antibiotics in the world are not going to provide you a source control until the patient gets to the operating room. So you need to have prompt surgical debridement of the infected and the chronic tissue. And I don't want to go into all the issues of fluid resuscitation and vasopressors and the surviving sepsis. We've done that on the other podcast, and I think that's the best place to refer you to if you need more detail. But I want to focus now on the ideas of what surgical debridement would be and why the excision of the inflamed infected tissue is really the only uh, appropriate surgical response. If when you dissect down to the fascia, it appears abnormal. We said we like that white glistening appearance, but it, if it's foul-smelling, gray, has that dishwater type of drainage, that would be considered abnormal, and it should be incised and examined in the muscle underneath it. If the fascia is abnormal, 
then you want to remove the skin and soft tissue above the abnormal fascia, lift it away to see how far the abnormality extends um, uh, from in the fascia. And the necrotic fascia, again, needs to be excised, the overlying skin and subcutaneous tissue also discarded. Now, this also uh, avoids the possibility of leaving large flaps of uh, heavily infected skin and uh, allowing the infection to continue. You do not want to try to close these wounds at this setting. Leave these wounds large, leave them open, and you'll come back at a later date uh, to provide additional type of uh, debridement and eventual uh, wound cl uh, closure. Uh, I manage these patients a lot like burn patients uh, and that they're uh, brought to the operating room on several occasions to make sure we have an adequate debridement. We are using topical antibiotics at the same time. Uh, in our unit, we're typically using mafinite acetate solution. Uh, other people would use different types of topical antibiotics. The key is to remember that the topical antibiotics are not the cure here. Um, the, the cure is adequate surgical debridement and the use of appropriate intravenous antibiotics. And once the patient has been stabilized and you feel you have an adequate wound bed, then we will typically close these patients uh, with uh, uh, split thickness skin grafts. If these are wounds that involve the perineum, uh, we'll also end up uh, doing diverting colostomies. And there, there's a lot of similarities in managing these patients, much like burns, and that you have many of the uh, issues with wound management, with the uh, appropriate use of analgesia for wound care, nutritional issues, providing adequate nutrition, as well as the metabolic demands, as well as the therapeutic for things like PT and OT to assure that uh, you are maximizing your restorative uh, functional capacity. been listening to the podcast I See Arounds. My name is Jeffrey Guy. Thanks for downloading and listening. There are several ways that you can access the podcast, certainly through iTunes, uh, free for download there. And uh, if you like what you're hearing, uh, please go to that uh, site and leave positive feedback. It does help in our ability to continue to provide the podcast for you. You can also download an app that's uh, uh, provided by Wizard Media, also through the iTunes store. Um, for $1.99, and what that does is it allows you to pull back all the archive podcasts, uh, number about 85 and counting, uh, and pull those up and have those available uh, for uh, on demand uh, through your smartphone. Also, uh, using Stitcher, the uh, smart radio for uh, the smartphones, uh, you can download the latest uh, edition of ICU Rounds through that uh, media as well. We do have a social presence on Facebook as well uh, for people to have conversation and discussion. Thanks for downloading. Have a great day. Thank you.